This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 233. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Today, I am joined by Jacob Paulson. Hello, Hi, sir. Hi, Riley. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, you're only allowed on every once in a while now. Uh, that's fine. I, I can be throttled. I have to, you know, protect the turf, you know, since you started, like, doing these shows and stuff on your own. And let me just say, they've not been going well, bro. <laughs> We've not had any negative feedback. <laughs> no, no one has emailed in and said... Please bring Riley back on. Please never do an episode without him again. That's that, we've not had any indication whatsoever that people miss you. I, I've gotten and messages saying they were glad I was back. Mm, I, okay, sure, yeah. Maybe I, not I've the not same thing as I've not seen them. Well, I mean, like I don't know. Maybe I'm from making your it mom. Up. Sure, That's your mom. Probably true. Listens. My mom. Yeah. yeah, it was my mom. I'm sure of it. So, <laughs> what's up, people? Uh, welcome to today's episode. We've got a whole host of stories. We've got a story about the FBI being incorrect in their analysis of active shooter situations. And they're sometimes wrong about all sorts of things, so that probably doesn't come as a surprise. We've got some legislative legislative updates. We've got a, a new legislative update segment. Now, this might get a little bit challenging because kind of later in the year, there tends to be fewer legislative updates, so it might not always have a story in this segment. Today, we've got two legislative updates, one from Louisiana, one from New Jersey. Uh, you're going to want to pay attention, especially to what's happening in New Jersey. I know it won't come as a surprise to people, but we have to be watching those states, New Jersey, New York, California, Illinois. Massachusetts, we got to watch these states. Even Colorado is is a trendsetter at times where it comes to legislation. And there's been some things talked about even here. We've got some some governor races. We've got a governor race um, that is going on that if we don't get the right person in that governor seat uh, in the next term, which is going to happen later this year, things could change here in Colorado. And that could be an issue as well. Anyway, then we got a whole bunch of really great justified safe stories, a couple that I'm really excited about, and they have some excellent lessons to be learned from these. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation. And I want to mention to you as an an exciting benefit of being a Guardian Nation member. We soon have what we call our Happy Birthday America sale coming up in just a few weeks. That'll run around the uh, the 4th of July, Independence Day. And as part of that Happy Birthday America sale, we will be giving away a gun, which will be, I think, an email that I saw Jacob go out, like the most American-looking gun ever or something like that. <laughs> yeah, last year, this this is a new annual tradition. Last year, we did it for the first time ever on what we call Guardian Day, which is the last day of our Happy Birthday America sale. And uh, to be entered in the drawing, you just have to be a member of Guardian Nation by midnight the night prior to Guardian Day, which this year I think is July 6th. It's that it's a Friday, the Friday of Independence Day week. Anyway, so if you're a member on you know Thursday at midnight, then on Friday morning, I do it live. I go on Facebook. We draw the winner. And last year we gave away a P320 that was like uh, red, white, and blue, you know, painted. It had the red and white stripes and the kind of the muzzle uh, had the blue with the like gold stripes and the, or the gold stars. And the stars were even like cut out. So you were seeing the gold from the bear. It was sweet. Yeah. Uh, this year's, I'm going to tell you, it's better. 
<laughs> yep. So uh, stay tuned for that, and we hope that you'll participate. But to participate in these big-time sales that we do, uh, you've got to be a member of Guardian Nation. Uh, this is one of our ways of giving back to our members. And uh, I'll just tease that we've got some killer deals in this sale this year, better than last year's. Uh, there are some things that you are not going to want to miss out on because they are 75% off. Uh, maybe, maybe even, I don't know. Do we have anything that's more than that? Ooh, I don't think so. But right around, right around that mark though. Yeah. So, so some, I mean, this isn't like getting a hat 75%. This is like getting real legit gun gear, stuff that you would expect to spend a a pretty penny for sometimes. And you can get it for 75% off some of it. You can get some of this stuff cheaper than your dealer can get it. Cheaper than Cabela's (laughs) could buy it from the manufacturer. Okay. Like, we will lose money on some of the product we're selling in this sale. <laughs> and in some cases, we've worked with vendors to procure some product for an exceptionally, you know, below dealer cost uh, price. So it's, it's worth it. Yep. Anyway, happy birthday, America sale coming up here in just a couple of weeks. Make sure you're a Guardian Nation member in advance of that sale. Um, also, we have the Triple Guardian course coming up again. Uh, we just did recently in Denver. We're going to be teaching it again in Ohio, July 13th to the 15th. Matthew and I will be the uh, primary instructors at that course, and that is in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. So middle of July, we hope to see you there. If you're able to uh, be, a, be a part of that, you, you're going to want to go to concealedcarry.com forward slash Ohio Triple Guardian 2018 to get signed up. And also, just a reminder that the podcasts are now available in the mobile app, the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app, available in the Apple uh, App Store and Google Play Store. If you haven't already, download the Concealed Carry Gun Tools app. And if you want to, you can, your favorite thing of that app might be listening to the podcast. I, I've got it right there on my phone, right there. See, folks, in Facebook world, bam, Concealed Carry Podcast in the app. It's, awesome. it's a fancy, it's a fancy media player. Like it'll remember where you left off, and you can speed up playbacks, and, and it'll work with all your Bluetooth devices and all that stuff. It's great. Yeah, and we've got some other really exciting things coming soon to updates to the app. We're constantly updating the app, um, much more consistently and much more awesomely. <laughs> now that we've got full time developer that works on the team now, and he's constantly working on the app. So uh, this is really something we stand behind and are trying to make more awesome by the day, by the week. So let's get now to one of the, uh, one of folks' favorite uh, segments of the podcast as of uh, recent couple months. And that is Andrew Brinka's Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. This week's case being out of the state of Texas, recently ruled upon. That's one of the cool things about these cases, Jacob, that Andrew's been pulling uh, for the podcast is that they're they're quite often their recent rulings. So this isn't in some cases. I think maybe he's dug back a little ways, but most of the time this is not something that's that's old and is being refreshed. This is brand spanking new, you know, legal cases that have just been ruled on and could make a, an impact on things. Um, and you know, sometimes it's only going to be specific to a certain state um, or region of the country, depending on if it's a district court, but. Still, these are things, good things to be aware of, and because if, if one court rules a certain way, then it's certainly plausible that another court in another state could also, you know, maybe follow a similar trend. 
So here we go with this week's case of the week. Queuing it up now. Thanks for joining us for the Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for LawofSelfDefense.com. This week's Case of the Week is Jordan v. State out of the Texas Court of Appeals and a decision handed down a couple of weeks ago on May 22, 2018. The issue in this case is whether a defendant is entitled to a self-defense jury instruction against a criminal charge of having accidentally shot two people when that defendant discharged his pistol while being attacked by a mob, and where the people shot were innocent bystanders rather than mob participants. This case begins, unsurprisingly, with a bunch of people drinking to intoxication in a bar restaurant, the Silver Star Smokehouse and Saloon in Texarkana, Texas. The defendant and a friend walked into the establishment to have dinner and were confronted by several of the drinkers who had a pre-existing grievance with the defendant. The defendant and his friend decided it was more prudent to leave rather than stay for dinner, so they canceled their food order and left. When they exited the restaurant, they had to walk past several of the drinkers who were gathered outside. The drinkers had apparently determined to attack the defendant and his friend, and as the defendant and friend fled to their car, they were indeed attacked. The defendant's friend was punched once, hard enough to immediately knock him unconscious. He would wake up in the ambulance and would be found to have suffered a fractured eye socket and nose from that single punch. The drinkers then rushed the defendant. The drinker who had knocked out the defendant's friend with a single punch was over six feet tall and extremely fit, in contrast to the defendant who was five foot five inches in height. So there was a substantial disparity of size and strength between just those two. In addition, however, the defendant was simultaneously being attacked by a second of the drinkers, so there was a disparity of numbers as well. After seeing what happened to his friend and being mobbed by two attackers, at least one of whom was much larger and stronger than he was, the defendant believed he had no alternative but to pull his gun and fire it even though he could not see to aim the weapon. In other words, he was firing blindly. In doing so, he managed to shoot two people uninvolved in the attack on him. Both were seriously injured but survived. And this would be the basis for two charges of discharging a firearm in a manner that constituted deadly conduct that were brought against the defendant. When the defendant fired the gun blindly, it did cause the two men attacking him to stop attacking him and to run away. The defendant fired at the larger attacker as he fled, striking him in the femoral artery. That attacker would survive the wound, however, and this would be the basis for an aggravated assault charge against the defendant. At trial, the defendant requested a self-defense instruction to the jury to all the charges against him, meaning both the aggravated assault charge for shooting the fleeing attacker and the two charges of deadly conduct for the shots fired blindly. The trial judge agreed to the self-defense instruction for the aggravated assault charge, but denied the self-defense instruction for the deadly conduct charges, the two blindly fired shots. The jury ultimately hung on the aggravated assault charge, and the court declared a mistrial on that charge, but the jury did convict the defendant on the deadly conduct charges. Now, these are third-degree felonies, so these are felony convictions. The defendant appealed his conviction on the grounds that it was reversible error for the trial court to refuse his requested self-defense jury instruction 
with respect to the deadly conduct charges. The defendant's reasoning is that although it's true he fired those two shots blindly and struck two people who were not attacking him, he fired the shots because he reasonably feared an imminent threat of death or grave bodily injury at the hands of the two men who were attacking him, and he fired the blind shots to end that attack. The appellate court, however, declined to accept this argument. It ruled that self-defense allows for the deliberate use of force against an imminent threat, not the mere blind use of force. Note that this is different than the transferred intent doctrine we've discussed previously in other cases of the week. If the defendant had fired lawfully and non-negligently at an attacker, and that round had overpenetrated and hit an innocent bystander, the lawful intent in firing at the attacker would transfer over to justify the incidental injury to the bystander. The facts here are different than that, with the Court of Appeals essentially concluding that firing blindly could not be a lawful use of defensive force because it was, by definition, not directed at a specific threat. Because the force itself could not be justified as self-defense as a matter of law, there was no need for the trial court to give a self-defense instruction with respect to the deadly conduct charges that were based on that unlawful blind firing. The defendant's conviction was affirmed. As always, I encourage you to read this case in its full text form. You can do that by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash Jordan. If you enjoy this content, I invite you to join us for the Law of Self-Defense live show every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. It's totally free to either participate live or to watch the recording after each show. For more information, point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash show. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. And there you have it, another case from Mr. Andrew Branca, attorney at uh, Law of Self-Defense, uh, the premier expert, I believe, in this area of the law, and uh, thus why we are pleased and honored to have him as part of the podcast each week uh, with these Case of the Week segments. That's quite a case, Jacob, because this is a question that sometimes comes up, you know, like what, what might happen if I am trying to defend myself, and in the course of that, I accidentally... My, my bullets strike others, you know, just innocent bystanders. And uh, this is a very specific case that sort of addresses that. Yeah, and I think it comes down to the idea of, the idea of deliberateness, right? If I am deliberately uh, defending myself versus wildly firing shots. And, and basically what I gathered is it came down to the fact that blindly firing shots off into the air is not deliberate self-defense. And because it's not deliberate self-defense, therefore you can't claim self-defense against you know to to justify those those charges. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Apparently, you know, take aim, or at least say you did. Yep. Yeah. That that was um, well. Certainly, that would be if we if we were analyzing this type of story uh, as like say one of our justified save stories. Uh, while a person may have been justified in using deadly force to defend themselves or others in a situation, the fact that 
maybe they were not very judicious in the way they did so. Uh, I mean, that would be concerning. That would certainly be one of the things that we would probably point out as a lesson to be learned. And in this case, uh, this type of situation, you know, this this person got burned in that they were not judicious. They were not careful. They were perhaps not prepared. Uh, perhaps they were. Their mindset was not right, and their shooting skills were also very lacking. In that, the gun came out, and they just started, you know, popping off rounds. So, yeah, Rocky is commenting here. You do not shoot without knowing your target. That is absolutely the that is the truth. Uh, you don't put the finger on the trigger until you've identified a, a target that you can actually shoot, and you've made a conscious decision to shoot that target. And you can't do any of that if you can't recognize or see or uh, if you ha- or have a clear shot to your yeah. target. Um, I guess two two final thoughts for me would be one: we're definitely on record, and every other credible instructor ever is also on record as telling you that you should never fire warning shots. Right? So warning shots are just basically always inherently bad. And the second thing is that I think we we don't give enough attention or credit or value to the idea of verbal commands in our industry. Now this this is a case where you know these guys were in attack. We've already punched one dude. Now we're after this other dude. But verbal commands can be very effective. And so, uh, like all other things, we got to train ourselves to use verbal commands. Uh, but, you know, if, if when, in the course of drawing a gun, if I have a kind of a muscle memory habit of also shouting the word stop as loud as I can, you know, might that be uh, an effective thing instead of firing some warning shot that I'm hoping will deter an attacker? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, like other things, it's got to be something we train. Uh, you know, recently we did a bunch of force on force scenarios on Riley and we kept asking people why they didn't use verbal commands. And I remember one person saying, well, I planned to because last time you know, we, we said we would. And so I totally had it in my head. I was going to use a verbal command. And then you get out there in that environment, the heart starts pumping and the, the mouth does nothing. So anyway, yep. verbal commands can be very effective tools as well. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Jason here commented, uh, did I hear they were walking into a bar while concealing? Hum? Um, which is a good point. Uh, you know, although this, I think this is, that, that could be an interesting situation, right? Depending on the state that you're in, this particular case was out of Texas and Texas, uh, I do believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Jacob, that, um, Texas, the law says that if the establishment derives a certain amount of revenue from alcohol says, then the establishment must post the appropriate state regulated sign and postage. Right. So it would be very specific to the, to the. The venue. In theory, you assuming a, an establishment like that is abiding by the law, and assuming they are in fact you know driving most of their income from alcohol sales, the the idea is that you probably shouldn't be carrying in a bar. But uh, now, so this the shooting itself occurred in the parking lot of this, and this was a restaurant slash it had a you know probably a bar area and then it was also a restaurant and it was very clear that it described it as a restaurant um so uh, and, and it does say that the individual involved i believe was was drinking i'm not sure to what extent i don't know how much that came into play here it may it may have it may not have it may not have even been relevant to the case what was relevant to the case was the fact that uh this person wounded innocent bystanders and couldn't really say one way or another you know what the target was they were shooting at or why they were shooting or you know they just were not judicious in their application of of the deadly force and that mm-hmm. was a big problem Yep. You and I have been into uh, many a, an establishment that serve alcohol carrying concealed. 
Uh, and yeah. and a, I think the vast majority of states that would be legal if you don't consume any alcohol. Yeah, like in Colorado is, and, and I think you're right. The majority of states I think take the approach that there's not a specific prohibition against firearms in bars, um, and there's many, in many cases not even a specific uh, law that addresses even the drinking aspect and being you know in possession of a firearm. Um, it's you know, that sometimes can be a gray area for sure, and especially depending on the state that you're in. Um, I, I, that's why I think it's a really good rule of thumb that if you're going to drink, period, just to be safe, I think you should disarm yourself. Okay. So, um, yeah, that, yeah there's, this is one of those ethical versus legal questions where, you know, ethically, the two just don't mix ever. Yeah. And that's just a, a solid line we draw on the stand. But legally, yeah, you even if you don't plan to drink, you might have a legal obligation to not enter the establishment based on you know, state law and stuff. Yeah, um, we I have a link I'm going to share. We can put it in the, sh- in the show notes, but we do have a page on our website that lists all 50 states and those state laws relative to uh, restaurants that serve alcohol or establishments that serve alcohol. So we can throw that in the uh, in the show notes. Totally. Well, on to our first story of today's episode. Crime Prevention Research Center. This is uh, John Lott's uh, site, right? He is kind of the main dude behind the Crime Prevention Research Center. And this is a pretty interesting article. Uh, The title here is New FBI Report Claims That 8% of Active Shooter Attacks During 2014 to 2017 Were Stopped or Mitigated by Concealed Handgun Permit Holders, But Misses at Least Half the Cases. Now, this, like I said, this is quite an article and it's rather in depth because it goes into all of these, these different instances. This is a really great resource because this is something that I have at times tried to sort of put together and collect. I've got a, a bookmarked tab or whatever, my browser of instances where good guys with guns stop bad guys with guns, specifically in active shooter type situations. This is probably the best collection of those types of stories I've seen anywhere. And there are 50, what, 15, I think, of them here or something like that. Um, So basically what it was is that the FBI released uh, a report about active shootings, and in that they acknowledged that seven of these active shootings, and they they state that I think there was, uh, let's see, it says it here between, uh, where was it again? So between uh, 2014 and 2015, uh, there were, uh, I lost it here. There it is. 20, 2014, 2015, there were 40 active shooter cases. And from 2016 and 2017, there were 50 active shooter cases. So basically we have about 90 cases uh, in that span of about three years. Okay. And so then they acknowledge that there's seven instances where a good guy, you know, civilian with a gun, typically carrying concealed, were able to stop or limit the destruction of those active shooters. And that amounts to about 8% of those active shootings. But John Lott pointed out, and actually they went back to the FBI because they got responses from the FBI on a lot of these and said, there was actually this case and this case and this case and you know all these other cases. And it's actually about double the number. Um, and in some cases, the FBI was like, okay, yep, we're right. We missed that. And in other cases, they, they didn't comment on them or they had some reason why they didn't include it. So this would be something I would encourage you all to dive into a little bit because there's some pretty interesting reading here. I'm curious what your analysis is, Jacob. Well, the 
yeah, there, there's some interesting reading here. What's clear is that the FBI's data field is not complete. Um, that's the first thing is that they just, they don't get it all. They, they, you know, they try to gather all the different, you know, things that happen, et cetera, but they're definitely just missing a certain number of incidents and things like that. Um, the second is that they are not defining things the way that John Lott thinks they should be defined. So they look at this one and yep. say, Oh, that, that didn't qualify because that's a domestic uh, you know, disturbance or just domestic incident. And John Lott says, no, it wasn't. Are you kidding? Like this, this, and this happened. That's a, a bunch of neighbors hanging out on their front patios or on the sidewalk is not domestic incident. Um, and, you know, and so there's several things like that where they just a disagreement about how we define or look at things. So that that's really good. But here's what I want. And I'm basically going to make a public declaration that as a company, we will go do the research because the data from the FBI will allow us to do it. I want to know in what percentage of incidents in which there is a concealed carrier with a gun available, do they succeed in stopping the threat? In other words, it is unfair to look at all of the data and say, okay, of, of all of the active shooter incidents in, the, in this three-year span, 8% or 15%, whether we're looking at the FBI's number or John Lott's number, 8% or 15% of them were stopped by an unarmed citizen. That would suggest that armed citizens fail between 85 and 92% of the time. But that's actually not true, right? Because in order for us to really look at that, we'd have to say, okay, of the, you know, of, of the universe of incidents that we're looking at and how many of them was there an opportunity for an armed citizen to stop the threat? And let's say out of 100 that the answer is 24. Okay, well, then, then we just have to look at those 24 and say, okay, well, in those 24, how many times was someone successful? Well, maybe the answer is 18. Well, if the answer is 18 out of 24, then that means that more than half of the time, armed citizens are able to stop active shooters. And that's actually a much more interesting, and I'll call it, profound and impactful uh, look at these kind of this kind of data, uh, in, in my opinion. So anyway, I, yeah. I think that's that's what's missing from this analysis. And as a company, maybe we just have to go do it ourselves. Sure. Those are interesting things to consider for sure. You know, it's kind of one of those things where um, I think collecting this type of information and data can be very challenging because it depends on how well, things are, it actually depends on how things are reported from the beginning, right? Um, in many cases, I mean, we just saw recently what in uh, Oklahoma, in the Tulsa area, right? There was another situation where concealed carriers, and initially it seemed there was one, and apparently there was actually two, who actually both went to their vehicles to retrieve firearms and then came back. And one of those guys shot and killed the uh, uh, the, the perpetrator, Right who had just shot and wounded a mother and her daughter, I think, inside the restaurant, right? You're familiar with the story. And, and so that would be an, almost another instance where I think this is something that you that I would classify as a concealed carrier stopping an active shooting. Um, I'm not sure if the FBI, per their definition, would call that one an active shooting or not. But to me, it seems like it, it was or could have been. It could have been way worse, I think, than it was. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. Some of those things are, can be really hard to measure and actually quantify, um, especially when you get into the semantics of how we define things. Uh, it, it's like chicken and the eggs to a little bit of an extent as well. I mean, like, for instance, we could talk about statistics where, you know, shootings where a reload was involved, where somebody actually had to reload their gun while they were shooting at a bad guy. And like those instances hardly ever exist. And I have to, you know, wonder 
why that is, and I, I think it could be a couple things. Number one, probably most shootings actually don't require a reload. But number two, how many people actually carrying a gun concealed actually have the spare ammo with which to reload and or are actually capable of doing so under stress? And so it's like, you know, like, yeah, there's probably actually other reasons why certain things happen the way they happen. Um, just, you know, outside the, beyond the point of, uh, it, it, you know, do you, you see what I'm getting at? Like, it's not even just a definition thing. It's, it could be that there's other circumstances, uh, that might not necessarily rise to the level of, of, uh, making it into some sort of report. I don't know. I'm kind of, yeah. So let's move on there. Next story, this is legislative updates. So welcome to our new legislative update segment. Um, Louisiana governor signs knife law reform, removes switchblade ban. I love seeing this kind of legislation happen because I think switchblade laws are stupid to, and pointless to begin with. And many of them are quite antiquated, have been around since the 1800s. We recently saw this also here in Colorado, where uh, surprisingly in a Democrat-controlled state, they also eliminated a switchblade law uh, from the books that had been around for many, 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 many years. And so as of May 25th, 2018, Governor Edwards of Louisiana signed HB 892 into law, and this reforms Louisiana knife law, removing a 1950s era ban on switchblades. And depending on, you know, when we see laws like this get overturned, uh, depending on the state, you know, sometimes what they define as a switchblade, I mean, it could be something as simple as a thumb-assisted uh, knife like this, right? And, uh, yeah, I've seen gray areas in laws, and so I, I just think removing a law like this clarifies things for people, you know, so much. It makes it a lot more simple um, for uh, us to, you know, know what's legal and what's not legal where it comes to knives. Yeah, I agree. Um it's, it's, the whole thing seems pretty silly and ridiculous. And clearly, you know, the people in Louisiana agree. You know, they're looking at this and they're saying, my gosh, this law was passed back in the 1950s, what, you know, 1956, um, back when it says switchblade knives were based on a propaganda campaign initiated in New York, shocker, where, you know, he, this guy, Delany, made a Congress, made a, a name for himself by pushing emotional appeals to ban switchblade knives claiming they were only useful for crime. <laughs> so 1956, right? So we're talking about 60-something years ago. I guess that would be like 70-something years ago, huh? It's like 70-something years ago. I'm not that good at math. A long time ago, <laughs> they said, hey, these switchblade knives have no appropriate use by civilians. They can only be used by criminals. So we got to get rid of them because then obviously that'll de decrease crime. Because there's no self-defense argument. Right, right, right. Of course not. So so now decades and decades go by and someone wakes up and says, wait, wait a minute. Um, that actually like didn't do anything to help anything ever. So <laughs> why is that there? Like actually wouldn't it be nice if people could defend themselves with a, with a knife? So like just as useful as they are for a criminal, aren't they equally useful for good people? And since since we haven't been able to eliminate switchblades from the planet, since people still make them and they do exist, therefore criminals are still getting them. And so what good have are we doing by not allowing you know yeah. law abiding people to have them? Yeah. Yeah. We hear the term switchblade and and it sounds you know, there's like a negative connotation because 
partly because that's how the media has educated and, and, you know, it's proliferated that idea that a switchblade, oh, that's something, you know, it's used in crimes. Uh, There's actually a public health argument, I think, that can be made uh, on behalf of switchblade knives in, in that there's this great advantage of being able to, with one hand, very easily open and close a knife. You, you don't ever have to bring your I – don't, I don't have an actual true switchblade, by the way. I, I, I keep meaning to buy one. It's one of those things that's like, yeah, someday I'll have one of those. Uh, but, uh, you know, like it's, it's similar to this Benchmade knife. Like I can open and close this with one hand. That's one of the reasons why I really like this uh, Benchmade my, knife because I can open and close this one hand. The switchblade works much the same way in that you could open and close it with one hand. That is huge because it's far safer for me to use this knife where I can just flick it open and flick it closed and I don't have to get the other hand anywhere near the blade and, and do some funky thing that you know might result in me injuring myself. So anyway, cool stuff. I'm glad to see states like Colorado and Louisiana turning laws like this around. On the flip side, in a state where things are not going so well in terms of gun laws, New Jersey, and this is going to happen tomorrow, in case you're wondering, okay? Because uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, who was just elected, I think, last year, uh, or maybe it's almost been two years now, a year and a half? I, I don't recall. I think it's maybe been almost a year and a half. So Yeah, I don't know. Governor Murphy has made it clear that he is going to sign tomorrow into law six bills that will make gun laws in New Jersey even stricter than before. And they were already fairly strict. Okay. So what are some of these laws? One of these would tighten rules. They would they would ban magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. Okay. So take down, take it down to the same uh, standard as California, New York State, um, and now Boulder, Colorado. Uh, okay, so a ten-round magazine limit. Uh, let's see what else. I'm trying to find the summary here. Here, oh, here's the other one. Got the whole list here. Yeah. Yep. Go. You want to go for it? Sure. Uh, A one two one seven which will create restraining orders in the state, allowing family members and others to ask a judge to have a person's guns seized and ban them from buying weapons for up to a year. This bill passed by 32 to five votes. So this is our extreme risk protection orders. I haven't read this, by the way, like I haven't read any of these bills. So I'm just going off these little short descriptions. So that's one where we were on record in the past, basically saying the devil's in the details could be really horrible, could be debatably okay. Uh, but you know how, how and under what circumstances you know are those decisions made? So that's a one two one seven, and there's a one one eight one, which will mandate law enforcement in the state to seize a person's guns if a mental health professional determines they pose a threat to themselves or others. Uh, a twenty seven fifty eight, which will define that strictly define that state residents need to show a justifiable need to obtain a permit to carry a handgun, meaning they must show that they face a specific threat to their own safety. This basically takes concealed carry law, okay, and permit issuing, and places it in the shall not issue category. That, that's that's basically what you have in New York and Hawaii and a few other states, uh, where or, or actually in a few other jurisdictions, where they require you to explain very specifically. Here's here's my specific threat, and this is why I need a permit. 
It, for most people, it means you can't get a permit because you can't think of a specific threat. You know, the other problem is that it leaves it up to a human to interpret what that is or what that means. So California is a great example of this because California state law says this. California state law says you have to have good cause uh, to, to apply for a permit. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the issuing authority in California is the county sheriff. So the county sheriff in uh, Placer County, which is up near Sacramento, that county sheriff can say, oh, good cause. Your desire to protect yourself uh, you know, from, from potential threats is good cause in my county. Here's your permit. Uh, but the the sheriff down in LA, you know, in, in Los Angeles County, can say, "Oh, well, we don't, you know, your your desire for self protection is not good cause. Um, you, you know, you need to show us that you carry around large amounts of cash on a regular basis or something. Yep. Uh, or maybe you know the the sheriff over in this other California county says, no, not that's not even good enough. You you need to bring us documented evidence of uh, life threats that have been made against you." Um, and so that's the problem is that, you know, anytime you write something like this, it leaves it in the hands of some human to determine what that means. Uh, you know, s- specific threat to their own safety. Well, what does that mean exactly? You know, some human's going to have to interpret that. So, of course, in New Jersey, it was already pretty dang difficult to get a permit, but uh, it's yep. not looking any now, Yeah, now it just gets worse. Uh, bill a 2757 basically is universal background checks requires all gun sales to go to be done in person, uh, and take place at a licensed dealer, a 2759. And these laws always just boggle my mind, Jacob, because this one is an outright ban in the state on possessing armor piercing bullets since, you know, those are, and and by the way, that one passed 37 to zero. So they got everybody to vote for that because, well, gee, you know, like, well, why do we need armor-piercing bullets? Uh, sure, you know that's common yeah. sense. That's another one that's up for interpretation, right? I mean, there are some there is some ammunition that says armor-piercing bullet on the outside, you know, almost basically in writing. But there's plenty of other things that someone, some human in New Jersey, could say. Oh well, we think that ammunition is armor-piercing, uh, based on our own interpretation of what that means. So mm-hmm. it's another thing that leaves it a little bit up. And maybe maybe the bill is very specific. I haven't read the bill, but. Uh, you know, to just to to ban the possession of armor-piercing bullets, that's that's not exactly an industry standard term that applies very clearly defined to very specific things. Yeah, and then finally, a twenty-seven sixty-one. That's that's the magazine uh, limit. So no more than ten rounds. So and yeah, I'll, I'll add that it's already illegal to possess hollow points in New Jersey. By the way, so, true, true. Like, so you know that's wow. You know that's a great point, Jacob, because. <laughs> you know, in, this in, is suggesting there are armor-piercing <laughs> rounds that are not hollow points that are now all outlawed. Well, usually, usually, armor-piercing are not usually hollow point, right? No, because you need less. But, but the point is, you're already limited on the hollow point side. Now you're limited, like on the other extreme, as far as like types of bullets that you can possess. Uh, so, you know, armor-piercing, no go. Hollow point, no go. So, literally. FMJ rounds that are not steel core or steel tipped or anything like that. I mean, you have one or, or all lead bullets, like solid cast lead bullets. Yeah, that's basically your options now in the state of New Jersey. Wow, that sounds awesome. You know, that's just another way of gun control, of, of accomplishing the mission, is limit what people can have ammunition-wise, and that will limit their options on the firearm side of things as well. And ironically enough, in many cases, this probably makes things less safe in, in, in a state like New Jersey than it does more safe. But yeah, we're preaching to the choir. 
So anyway, we we bring this to you. This is the latest the latest legislative news. Uh, big things happening there in New Jersey. That I mean, all six of these bills are additional gun control, and uh, that's sad to see. I mean, not necessarily a, a surprise at all. Um, yeah, I know that Governor Chris Christie was a controversial governor. I know there are some people that are probably pro-gun that didn't. I actually, I know there's probably many people that didn't like Governor Christie. But I know I've seen comments on Facebook in the last week, people saying, well, I wish I just had Governor Christie back <laughs> because he wouldn't have he wouldn't have signed these bills into law. Nah, no way. <sighs> That's, this, is, this is the price. This is what happens when we fail to put into office uh, people that will stand up for our rights, particularly our Second Amendment ones. Next story. Man says someone, by the way, this is one that I that I uh, uh, clued into, Jacob, and I, I sent this over to Matthew as Matthew was preparing the outline, because this one, well, I've got my own thoughts I want to share on this uh, for good reason. Man says someone threatened him with shot up target practice paper in response to political yard sign. <laughs> so... <clears throat> And this happened right here in the basically the metro Denver area. So this is close to home for Jacob and I in the Stapleton area of uh, Colorado. <clears throat> yeah. So here's here's the the facts. Okay. Like if we if this was a when was in trial, if we're in a in a courtroom, these would be the facts presented. Okay. Uh, the defendant put up some signs, political signs in his yard that that specifically endorsed a, a gubernatorial. A candidate. Did I even say that word right? A person running for governor. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, the next day, he found in his backyard a paper target with holes in it. <laughs> Those are the facts of the case. That's, that's it. That's literally it. <laughs> that's it. So now out of that, though, comes this headline. Man says someone threatened him with shot up target practice paper in response to political yard sign. <laughs> this shows how overly sensitive people are, especially, I'm sorry to say it this way, but on the other side, people, this is, people are overly sensitive. Uh, he's, so this gentleman, he says he doesn't want his last name to be used because he's worried about his family's safety. Uh, he is a supporter of Mike Johnston, who is a former state legislator now running for governor of Colorado. Uh, and he says that on Friday, somebody or Saturday, somebody put a, pra- a, a target paper uh, I- that was shot up with bullets in his backyard. And, and you see images. I got the video rolling here. You see images of him holding it, and you can see it's kind of all crumpled. Okay, which that's going to lead into uh, my analysis of this. Uh, his quote here is: "It's so surreal." Surreal. I think here in Stapleton, you think you are in a bubble, but it brought me back to reality, said Ryan. And I actually think he is way missing the boat in terms of reality. But anyway, uh, so he says that, that, that this, and actually they have a quote from the gubernatorial candidate, Johnston, Mike Johnston, saying that, uh, you know, he's saddened that this happened. And this is why he is in favor of red flag legislation or high risk protection order type red legislation. Because whoever did this, clearly, you know, we need to look at them and probably take their guns away. Here's the, here's the thing. This is what I think, Jacob. And I think you probably see the same thing, the same hole in the logic of the people involved in this story. 
I think, because by the way, because I know what the weather was like last week, and it was windy for a couple of days. In fact, specifically Friday evening, the evening before the Saturday that the Target paper was found, we had a little bit of a of a, some thunderstorms that went through, some strong winds. I think that Target paper blew into that dude's backyard. And I think he, you know, I think it was just coincidence. And he's like, well, I just put the sign up yesterday and somebody has now tossed this thing, this paper in my backyard to threaten me because they disagree with my choice of political candidate. I think it blew it. I think it was that somebody, it blew out of their, their pickup truck or something and it blew over this dude's fence and into his backyard where he yeah, happened what, to find it. Yeah. What's more likely, <laughs> right? Like what, what statistically is higher chance? If I want to put a target with holes on it, on your on your property to threaten you. Do you think I'm going to chuck it in your backyard randomly? Or do you think I'm going to like <laughs> tape it to your door or you know, yeah. like shove it in your mailbox uh, or or say, you know, F governor candidate so and so, you know, on it or something. Right. right? Like like I just found a piece of trash in my backyard on a windy day that happens to have holes in it and turns out it's a target. Like I'm, I'm mind blown. Like I'm not saying it's, it's not possible that, that this is the, the situation, but for, for there to be not even uh, a mention at all, anywhere in the news coverage that it could just have possibly have just been a piece of paper that blew into the dude's yard is, is to me shoddy journalism for one. Agreed. Uh, among other things like, <laughs> come, come on, like let's at least acknowledge the possibility that it's more likely that the wind could have just blown this into your backyard than that one of your neighbors took a random target with holes in it <laughs> and shot it in your backyard as a way of making a threat. It says the, the final line of the story, Denver police have collected the target practice paper as evidence and they're probably <laughs> doing nothing with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I got to tell you, if, if this was my backyard and I found it, would, would my wife and I chat about it? Yeah. And, and might there be a little concern like, wait, what if somebody put this back here as a, maybe, maybe it would come up and we'd be like, huh? Yeah. I don't know. Like interesting thought, dear, you know, like maybe we should put up a some cameras. Okay. Sure. Like whatever. But we'd be like, oh my gosh, someone's threatening our lives <laughs> because there's papers in our backyard. Come on. Oh, the ridiculousness. Oh, people. So let's move on now to YouTube. This was a story that everywhere I looked on social media, this was present uh, over the weekend. YouTube blocks videos from Iowa gun seller Brownells, then changes its mind. Yeah, so we saw over the weekend that Brownells' YouTube channel was suddenly, it was, it, it was gone, okay? This has happened to many others. Uh, and you know, what kind of frustrates me a little bit, Jacob is I, I think YouTube does occasionally send, don't they send some notice sometimes like, okay, Hey, you're, you violated this or whatever. Um, am I, am I right in that? Yeah. Community violation is what they call it. So sure. any, any YouTube account, uh, has an allowance basically of three community violations. When you get cited with a community violation, you can respond to it, you can appeal it, you can have it overturned. Um, but if it if you can't get it overturned, it sticks on your account. That's one strike. 
and you can get yeah. two strikes and be fine. But when you get three strikes, three community violations, your account is terminated, which is what happened with like James Yeager, for example. Sure. Uh, in this case, according to Brownells, they've they've had community strikes before, but they've all been appealed and overruled. Yeah. Okay. So they've all been overruled. Now, despite being overruled in the past and having currently zero active community strikes against them, their account was just willy-nilly, as far as they're concerned, shut shut yeah. off in its entirety. Now, I, I, I seem to recall I've heard of other channels that just suddenly, without warning, gone. Walther. There's an example. Yeah. Fire manufacturer. Their channel just disappeared. This is like three weeks ago. Yeah. So this is obviously concerning, you know, uh, and I know that this is an interesting issue because people are like, hey, this is a second or excuse me, a First Amendment violation, like free speech, free speech, free speech. And, you know, which I, I get, I understand because YouTube is so ubiquitous. It's so widespread. Like everybody uses YouTube nowadays and is familiar with the service. And when something gets to be that universal, you start to tend to think of it as a community property. When in fact, it actually isn't. And I know that there are some that would perhaps argue, well, maybe it should be because it is so universal. Maybe there should be some sort of of, of regulation that uh, you know protects our First Amendment rights on, a, on something so universal as YouTube. But the fact is, there isn't. And I don't know that there should be necessarily. It's private. It's a private business. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say private uh, because it is Google is obviously publicly owned, but but this but it's 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 a it's a, a separate entity. It's not a government entity. It's it's a business. It's not the public square, right? Yeah, it's not publicly owned uh, in the sense that it's government owned. Yeah. So it's a it's a business, and they have rules. And if you violate the rules, then they can kick you out. Now, sometimes it feels like that they probably are are unfair as to how those rules are administered. Um, this is a situation where I don't know whether they legitimately made a mistake or if it literally was just everybody letting them know how pissed off they were. But it said here that um, that basically they decided to reinstate YouTube's account. It, it It's implied that it's because of all the pressure they got from pro-gun people. Um, and there was a statement from a spokesman from YouTube that said, with the massive volume of of, of videos on our site, sometimes we make the wrong call. When it's brought to our attention that a video or channel has been removed mistakenly, we act quickly to reinstate it. And by the way, it was re- relatively quickly reinstated. So that that sp- statement from that spokesperson seems to imply that they're admitting guilt that, hey, we screwed up, we're sorry, we've attempted to fix that now. My concern, Jacob, though, with with things like this is that if there is a mistake, and this is not the first time it's happened, Walter, I think, is another great example, um, and, and others, if this is not the first time it's that the mistake has happened, then what is YouTube doing to try to make sure there's not other channels that are mistakenly removed? Yeah, and the answer to that is I don't know, right? Um, and, and we can only hope that they're trying to be better. It is. I, I get that it's challenging. And we look at it we're like, hey, that's two huge mistakes. It's like, well, yeah, they're, they're probably moderating and looking at you know, millions of videos all the time to make these decisions. So there's, there's certain complexity and challenge there that you know, I'm, I'm a little bit understanding of. I also am totally in support of them choosing what content they do and do not allow on their platform. 
as does Facebook, as does, you know, Google.com, as does Twitter, as does, you know, in this case, YouTube, Amazon. I'm totally in support of that yeah. because, for example, you know, we it's really easy to sit there and cry the First Amendment cry. Oh, but, you know, it's like a public square. Everybody, well, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that YouTube doesn't allow pornography and they don't allow drug use and outright violence. Um, and, that, you know, there's that they, they have community guidelines that protect my kids. My kids get on YouTube, Riley. And so there, I, I feel, you know, there's still some things on YouTube I really don't want my kids to see, but I, I am grateful for some of the community policies and guidelines that they have. Um, and, and so anyway, I, I guess here's what I would say. YouTube is owned by Google. And as a company that gives Google a decent amount of money, uh, I have been generally impressed by Google and therefore YouTube's ability to admit mistakes. Uh, I, I don't mind any of these platforms having rules and policies as long as they communicate what those rules and policies are very clearly so we can play by their rules and that they then only you know enforce the policies that they have and, and they fix it when they screw up. So, But yeah. their policy on gun-related stuff and gun-related channels I don't think is very clear. Oh yeah, it's not as clear. In, as in it could some be. spots, it is. In, yeah. in in some areas, it's very clear. Like bump stocks, they're that that's gone. Like yeah. that's pretty totally. clear. Sure. But when sure. they start talking about like you know trigger enhancements and accessories and you know some yeah. like it, it it can be sure. very broad. Very broad. It's not clear. Yeah, like you can't show people how to build guns, but can you disassemble one and put it back together? Well, it's not. It's yeah. not. It's not. That's not clear. And, and this know, is you, one of the yes. areas where Brownells is is in a bit of a challenging position because a lot of their videos are well known for being. They're kind of in that in in that genre of of here. Here's how you do this one thing. Here's how you fix your gun. Here's how you install sure. this part. Yeah. And that's very educational content. But YouTube and with their broad policy might not see it that way. And I think that's what happened here. Well, and I, I agree. And that's what I was saying. Like the, the, for me, you want to have policies? Great. Like just tell me what they are so we can play by your rules. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that – I don't think it's fair to have a policy and not communicate really well what it is. But I do think that Google and, and I include YouTube in that conversation are generally pretty good at communicating. And I'd say even more important – they're really good at listening and admitting mistakes. Far better than Facebook. Oh, geez, I mean, you can actually get a response from people at YouTube, whereas Facebook, they shut you down and 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 you're like, what what, what, what did I do? What did I do? And for weeks, you might not know. <laughs> you, you may never find out. That's true. What you did to violate the policy, and yep. you may may or may not really have a legitimate opportunity to appeal the decision. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, for forever sure. that's worth right. Yep. But the fact remains that that our industry is under attack from a lot of different angles, legislatively, uh, you know, from an expressive side of things. And yeah, those while those those companies or industries might have the right to restrict content and, and I respect that. Uh, we certainly have the right to create our own channels and there are some that are doing that. Uh, but you know, it it's it's clear that we, you know the gun industry to many of these big corporations and also to a large part of the general public is just not very popular, uh, which is why we got to we got to be more responsible. We've got to do a better job of educating um, and and showing and being good examples. I think as people uh, in an industry like ours is. Uh, moving on to a story from Guns.com. Uh, this is kind of 
on a similar note to a degree, we've got a, a, a business that is kind of making things a little bit more difficult on gun related business, other, other businesses that are gun related into it recently, which is the parent company of TurboTax and QuickBooks, uh, apparently shut down processing on some payments for gun related, uh, sales. And, uh, this caused some problems for some businesses. Now Intuit has come out and said that, uh, they didn't stop processing all gun sales. They made that clear. And in fact, they said, our company does not prohibit any of these regulated industries, including the firearms industry, from using QuickBooks for payment processing. In fact, many do so today. However, for these transactions, our bank partner requires them to be done face-to-face. To meet this requirement, our policy today requires the customer to be present to swipe their credit card. So it sounds to me, Jake, where this has gotten you know to be a little bit sticky is in cases where someone's buying a gun on GunBroker, right? Sure. And it's completely legitimate. All the laws are followed. You are sending money. You are paying a company. Let's say I'm in Colorado. Let's say I'm buying a gun from somebody in Iowa and I pay them virtually with my credit card in Iowa, but they are sending the gun to a dealer here in Colorado where a background check is done and I pick up the gun in person provided that background check is cleared. Intuit saying, we require you to be in person when you're making one of these purchases. And so they shut down a bunch of stuff last week, and that, that caused some problems. And, th- and that's, that's the challenge here where we have – and here's the thing. like Some people, businesses, CEOs, whatever, probably are like, wait, what? Online gun purchases? Isn't that supposed to be illegal? But they, they, because they have no clue of how it actually works and how 99.9% of online gun purchases are probably done so legally. At a dealer with a background check. Exactly. Uh, And and oftentimes, even when they're not done at a dealer with a background check, they're probably still legal. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, I I get it. And and I I appreciate that Intuit stepped up here and said, hey, we've been falsely accused of being anti-gun. We're not anti-gun. We just have happen to have a that policy. might be a stretch. Well, <laughs> anyway, rel- I can tell you, relative to some other providers, PayPal sure. Sure. won't you know won't won't touch the gun industry. Yep, uh, we've talked about a lot of other big ones. PayPal is one I say because most people are aware and know that company. Um, so, relative to other merchant providers, Intuit as a large company is actually relatively pro-gun. At very least, what they're saying here is we're not anti-gun. We just happen to have a policy that you know transactions have to take place in person in this particular you know for this particular type of product, uh, which you know that's their company. We could decide if that's reasonable or not. To your point, maybe they do or don't understand you know the way transactions are done and what all that looks like, and you know that, that's arguable, but it's really not relevant. Uh, the point is that they were falsely accused. And I agree, by the way, because I read some of the initial articles that were published that basically said Intuit is you know, refunding you know, all purchases for anyone in the gun industry. And they won't, you know, they, they won't, you, you know, if you're a firearm business, Intuit won't work with you. And then now I read this one. And it's like, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. We just happen to have this, you know, this policy that transactions in this particular regulated industry have to take place in person. Um, because that's their policy, and they say so, whether whether it's smart, dumb, or we agree with it or not. So anyway, yeah. that's a lot different than just refusing to do business with gun companies. Yeah. Now, now 
There are still reports, though, that, and this could just be that purchases are misidentified as being a gun purchase, uh, but it says that uh, uh, business owners told the New York Post last month that the company reversed charges for the items sold at their stores, including T-shirts, coffee mugs, and in one case, a gun safety class. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, into it, to, to their credit, they're saying they didn't stop processing all gun uh, related sales. They were specific about which ones they were trying to stop, which would be the, anything that was not in person. But, you know, could it also be that there's some other purchases that are getting lumped into that category because they're misidentified? Uh, I think that's absolutely possible. Um, just so people are aware, there are much more pro-gun, proce- you know, payment processors out there. There are actually, uh, comp- there's a company or two out there that specifically uh, are, are for the gun industry. Problem is, is they're not probably quite as as uh, cheap to use for businesses. Um, you know, maybe don't have some of the key benefits that maybe a business needs, depending on how they do their business. Um, but once again, it's another opportunity where you know maybe some of these things like I, I respect Intuit's right and other companies' rights to not allow those sorts of things to happen within their business. That's their business, uh, and the free market I think can solve these types of issues. I don't know. Final, oh wait, I don't know, actually not quite a final story. We've got to move along though, because I know Jacob's got to go here before long. Um, we got a couple more stories here. First off, May 2018 set another record for background checks. Uh, and this is saying, according to the FBI, the NICS background checks in the month of May was the, the, the most ever in a month of May. So single busiest May in the history of NICS background checks. So this counters some story. There was some reporting a month or two ago about well things are on a decline and that's probably due to Parkland, uh, but this sort of counters some of that. Maybe there was a time. I don't know. I, 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 they actually it does say here that uh, March, April, and May, all three months, set records for those months for Nick's background checks. So it seems like purchases are now doing much better in the firearm industry, which is good news for the firearm industry because last year was was kind of a rough one. Absolutely. Yeah. People are still buying guns. That's, that's what we, that's what we know. Hey, more power to them. Uh, I think you bought a couple of guns last month. Mm, yes. <laughs> In one transaction. So I would have had one Nix check. Yep. Yep. And that's the thing with those Nix uh, st- st- statistics. And we've mentioned that before in the podcast that when we see these records, like they're counting checks, you know, but it could, a person could buy 10 guns at one time. And uh, yeah, that gets counted once. So it actually doesn't accurately count the actual number of guns that are sold. Man, if I bought 10 at one time, I think the sheriff would have showed up at my door (laughs) for an interview. Yeah, let's hope not. (laughs) Because that shouldn't be the case. Uh, Texas Republicans turns a new town group to promote gun safety education. Now, when I saw this headline, Jacob, I was like, eh? (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, I love how of all the things they could do to reference this organization, the thing they decided to call out is that they're based in Newtown. <laughs> yeah. Now, I knew this about the National Shooting Sports Foundation, but, you know, it's kind of like I said, I was reading the article and I'm like, what are they what what are they talking about here? Why is a pro-gun governor, Governor Greg Abbott, why is he supporting and giving a grant to anything Newtown related. Oh, wait, it's the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Oh, okay. All right. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, because, yeah, you, you, your first thought was probably one of these anti-gun uh, uh, organizations, but in reality, National Shooting Sports Foundation, of course, is very, very much pro-gun and also very much pro-education. And that's what this was focused around, is, is in hopes to continue to promote education, especially towards youth and children, as it relates to firearm safety. And so... More, you know, bravo, more power to you, Governor Abbott and others and anyone that supports uh, those types of efforts, especially from the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Thumbs up from me. Moving on, American Rifleman reporting, you know, business is just getting, I don't know if I'd say more difficult. I guess maybe more difficult. It depends on what kind of company or business they want to be. But things are getting more difficult for Dick's Sporting Goods. There, there have been a number of companies that have said we're not doing business with Dicks, and by um, you know association, that also means filled and stream stores, which are owned by the same company. So we we know that Mossberg, uh, High Point, um, uh, Springfield Armory, and and several other companies have come out and said we will not do business with Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, and this all stems back to when Dicks decided to. Um, as a business, you know, not because they were complying with any new laws, but just they chose to up the limits uh, for purchasing guns. And this is the response from the private industry, and I think it's awesome. Hogue Inc. removes Dick Sporting Goods as authorized dealer. Hogue's a big company. They make a lot of cool products, especially uh, grip products for guns. Um, you go into any sporting goods store, you can, I can guarantee you'll find some of their products on the shelves. You're not going to be finding them at Dick Sporting Goods or Field and Stream stores anymore. So, bam. Don't be a Dick's. <laughs> How's that? Yeah. So. That's uh, one, one more on, on the board. Yeah, there's. Like at least a half dozen. Riley, I hereby declare that we will not sell any of our products to Dick's either. That should be pretty easy to accomplish. (laughs) 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 But it would be interesting if some, you know, buyer, you know, a representative from Dick's called us up and said, hey, we're really interested in those Glock E-trainers. We understand you guys are the North American distributors for. We'd like to carry those in our store. What's your response, Jacob? Big whopping no dice, dude. <laughs> and then I'm calling the NRA American Rifleman so they can write all about it. But yeah, now we have High Point, Mossberg, Springfield, and Hogue. And I think there's a couple others too. I just can't remember who they are. This one's that come to my mind. Yep. So now on to our justified saves segment. We've got four great stories coming right up. This first one is awesome uh, for a good reason. Two Florida drivers scare off knife-armed attempted carjacker with guns, police say. This was in Orlando, Florida. And so basically, a man robbed a Florida Walmart liquor store at knife point. He then tried to get away by carjacking two people. But they both scared him off with guns they had in their vehicles with them. Yeah. Bam. it's kind of interesting because it, it sounds almost like he went from one car to the next, and that's not the case. Um, the, these incidents were kind of spread out, but he goes to get into the first car, and he kind of is trying to force his way in, and he has a knife. He's armed with a knife, and he's actually slicing at and ends up kind of cutting you know, the, the, the victim quite a bit, and that victim is able to finally get his gun and display it, and that scares off our knife man, register thief you know, from, from Walmart. 
And then he runs off and kind of, you know, takes off and gets into a little area, a little ways away. And he climbs into the passenger seat of a car uh, that a woman is driving. She exits her car, goes around to the trunk where she retrieves a firearm and points it at him. And he runs out of that one. And then he goes into some retail establishment. I can't remember. Supercuts. Supercuts. That's right. And hides in the bathroom. Where police later found him. And I, I misquoted, by the way. It's not. It wasn't. This was reported. It, where we're reading the story from is the Orlando Sentinel. This actually happened in Jacksonville, Florida. I, you know, I just I loved this story, Jacob, because what are the odds this guy is going to try to carjack two different people, two different vehicles, and both of them respond by drawing their weapons on him? Apparently they're they're higher than we thought. <laughs> um, and it's kind of fun. The first guy that he was trying to carjack that drew the gun, who 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 was cut up by that knife. He was wearing a shirt at the time that says AR-15 on the front. Oh no, uh, kidding! I yeah, didn't, yeah, I didn't catch that. Yeah, so it's kind of fun. Uh, yeah, so I think I think I, I love this story because to me, I want the criminals to read these stories. I want the criminals to see that holy crap, there are more and more citizens out there getting armed that are ready and willing to prepare themselves. The other thing I love about the story, no shots fired. Yeah. None. Yep. So for all the anti-gunners out there who want to say that, you know, wild West is coming and all us crazy concealed carriers are going to start gunning down people in our neighborhoods. That ain't the case. Yeah. That's not even close to the case. You know, no, th- these people were purely focused on their own defense. They let the men run away. They didn't shoot him in the back. You know, they let him go. They just wanted to defend themselves. And, all, all turned out fine in the end. Walmart got back their cash register with money in it. This guy went to prison, and our two armed citizens survived to, to live another day. Yeah. I, I found that that uh, photo you were talking about, and this was in a related, a linked story to the Orlando Sentinel story. If you go back to the original story at uh, CBS 47, Fox 30, Action News, Jacksonville, <laughs> and then you see this here. This is awesome. This guy's got his AR-15 shirt on. Good, good yep. for him. Good for him. Cool story. Um, glad it ended well for everybody involved, frankly. And that's what that's what self defense and concealed carry for me is all about. And so many of these instances, shots aren't fired, and yet because people are responsibly armed Americans, they are able to resolve issues like this sometimes nonviolently, and that's cool. That's awesome. Now, this one unfortunately didn't end that way. This is. According to abc13.com out of Katy, Texas, a man accused of killing brother who threatened to hit their mother with a sledgehammer at a Katy, Texas home. A tragic story. is This is kind of in the same category. We've had other similar stories. We've had stories where husbands have had or fathers have had to shoot sons and sons have had to shoot fathers and other family members. And it's tragic, but you know, self-defense applies to those within families as well. Uh, a man was killed by his own brother after he threatened to hit their mother with a sledgehammer at a home in Katy. Police say uh, said that uh, when officers arrived, one of the brothers was laying deceased on the floor and the other one had shot him. Uh, this started because the brother that got shot was aged 34. It went by the name Cliff. He was threatening his mother with a sledgehammer. That's when Cliff's 31-year-old brother, Walter, saw what was happening. He then drew his gun and shot Cliff in the back. Now, isn't that an interesting uh, part of the story as well, Jacob? Because uh, 
it says that the bullet went through his chest and hit his mother in the left arm. Um, it doesn't matter in certain cases, okay? I mean, this this is not true of every situation, but we sometimes hear the, the phrase, well, you don't ever shoot people in the back. Well, that's not, I mean, as a general rule, that's a pretty good rule, but that's not necessarily always the case because you have a third party here defending, you know, this mother, uh, and whether he shoots this this other brother in the back, the front, the side, it doesn't really matter. Uh, if justified deadly force is in fact justified, then it's justified. Um, so that piece of information in the story I thought was really interesting. The other piece I thought was interesting is that the bullet actually went through the, the one brother and did actually end up, unfortunately, striking the mother. So yeah. some good lessons to be learned there as well. Penetration is a thing. You, you, you said, Riley, that he drew his gun. Well, uh, and I didn't see that anywhere in here. It said that he shot him. He, he um, drew whether, he, whether he drew from a safe or a holster. Sure, if we want to be sure. specific, there we don't know where it came from. Yeah. yeah, we don't know if this is a guy that's always you know always armed because his brother's little office helter. We we, we don't know, right? Yeah. But uh, what, what you know, a lot of these stories we don't know all the context. For all we know, uh, this guy is usually on meds and he was freaking out and. You know, we don't we don't know what words he was saying and the threats. So it might sound a little bit extreme, or it might not. You might hear this and say, "Yeah, totally. Yeah, shoot that dude." Um, but yeah, you know, to your point, I, I do think it's interesting that you know, shot was was shot in the back, and I also think it's interesting that uh, we have penetration here so significantly enough to hit the mom in the arm. Now, yeah. in this case, it's just the arm. It's an arm wound. She's glad to be alive and not hit in the head with a sledgehammer, I'm sure. But uh, it does make you think a little bit about you know, shot angles and trying to do things to minimize uh, risk. Yeah, you need to be considering your backstop. And uh, if possible, try to change the angle that you are facing uh, so that it minimizes that, that potential. And realize that bullets can be deviated after passing through somebody. So, uh, you know... I mean, certainly it would be ideal to not have uh, an innocent person being directly behind a person that we are about to shoot. Uh, but we probably, if possible, we, we want to try to make sure they're not anywhere even close to being behind that person that we're shooting at. Because that bullet could actually deviate slightly and, and exit at a little bit different angle uh, that we might than we might expect. So... Uh, yeah, be thinking about that. This is a great lesson that, that I think we can take from this story. Uh, there's there's several here in this story, but that that's a big one here with being mindful of what's beyond our intended target and realizing that, yeah, we, we need to actually be met, uh, consciously thinking about uh, the angles and the backstop and all that. Yep. So next one out of uh, Alabama, eh? Lauderdale County, Alabama. Indeed. This one's super confusing. This is shoddy journalism. This, <laughs> this person should be fired immediately. Who wrote this? I don't see a name anywhere, but fire that sucker. <laughs> it's so confusing. I had to read this like three times because this is what it says. Michael Moore Watson, age 47, confronted and assaulted a neighbor over loud music. Deputies yep. say Watson then turned toward a family member of the assault victim and a man shot him. <laughs> now, I'd probably have to repeat that like five times for the average person to like figure out what actually happened. So <laughs> shame on you, horrible journalist. 
Yeah. No, it is kind of confusing. I mean, so it appears that what happened is that Michael Moore Watson is, he's the man that ultimately is shot, right? Okay. He confronted and assaulted a neighbor over loud music. When he turned towards another family member, somebody there shot him, apparently in defense of that family member. Yes. Apparently all all three of the other people are all part of the, the fa- group that was playing loud music. Yeah, so you got music player number one who's being assaulted. You got music player number two that Watson turns and looks at, which is apparently relevant to the journalist. And then you have music player number three who shoots him in that moment. So that that that's as good as we can get from this story. Yeah. So there's not a lot of detail here, and you might wonder why did I choose to include this in today's podcast? I chose to include it because it's very easy for things like this in the you know like like this situation. It's very easy for things to get elevated quickly and to get out of hand quickly, and emotions get elevated. You know, this started over music being loud. Now. Hey, I've I've been there. I've had a, I got a neighbor. No offense to him, he's a nice enough fella, but every once in a while he gets a little drunk. He has a good time. He lives just on the other you know other side of me here and gets noisy. And I have had to go over there a time or two and say, "Hey, neighbor, how you doing? It's eleven thirty at night. My children are not asleep because of your loud music." <laughs> you know. And it can be very easy for that. Now, fortunately, he's a he's a he's a pleasant drunk. I go over, I say, "Hey, dude, can we tone it down a little bit?" He's like, "Oh, sorry, man." But can we? But you can see how this can get uh, escalated quickly. And I just caution you to make sure we always keep a cool head. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll throw out something else, and I think I've, I've I've probably said this at least once before on this podcast. This is another one of those situations where having a relationship with your neighbors pays off. Totally. Do your neighbors know you? Have you actually gone, you know, to like pick the four houses closest to you and probably the couple of people who share a back fence? Have you ever gone and knocked on that door? Like, yo, I'm your neighbor. What's up? Um, you know, like uh, we have a, we do, we do neighbor gifts for Christmas. Every Christmas we hit up about, you know, three or four of the houses closest to us. We take over a little, you know, think of treats and, some honey because we're beekeepers. We like honey anyway. And, and we, you know, we, Hey, Merry Christmas. And if that's the only time we see that neighbor all year long, at the very least there's some relationship. Uh, I, I had a situation a week or two ago when one of my neighbors, three dogs went missing, just a next door neighbor. Hmm. And man, everyone was involved and everyone knew everyone's names. Hey, Jacob, did you hear about the dog? Yeah. Yeah. Have you been looking? Yeah. I already checked over here, here, here. Oh, okay, great. We didn't find the dog. No. And we know each other's names, you know, little small talk comes out. And I've talked to three or four neighbors. I, I usually talk to them once a year, but hey, someone's dog went missing. So anyway, I just think that there's great value because uh, you mentioned, you know, your your friend, the, the the neighbor, the drunk, you know, on occasion has a good old time. I'm not saying he's always drunk. I'm not just trying to imply that. I don't know the neighbor. No, but that, you have a relationship with that man, right? Reasonably well enough, yes. You to recognize do- <laughs> each other. You've had some pleasant breeze here and there. You've had a few conversations. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah, I'm not that, saying that, you're that goes a long friend, ways. But it does go a long way to know yeah. some names and to you know wave and not occasionally stop and say, what's up? What's new? Everything cool? Let me know if you need something. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Generally, then don't shoot at you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, I said what I said because you know, there's a part of me that thinks this Michael Moore Watson fella who ultimately assaulted his neighbors. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but obviously it got to a point where somebody felt like they needed to shoot him. Um, I, I, I kind of think that he probably wasn't necessarily a, a bad person or maybe intending to to really hurt anybody. I think it's probably just someone that got caught up in the moment and got overly heated. And uh, that cost him his life, which is unfortunate. And somebody else had to pull the trigger. And do we know whether that was truly justified yet or not? We don't, although it's being this case is being presented to an upcoming grand jury to uh, consider the, the, the case and the facts. So, but we reported on it because uh, there's some good lessons to be learned here. Final story: Ohio man 84 exchanges gunfire with home invaders. This is on Cleveland.com, out of Silverton, Ohio. An 84-year-old man was wounded Sunday night when he exchanged gunfire with two men who broke into his home, according to reports. The victim was taken to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, center in unknown condition. A spokesperson with the sheriff's department says that two male suspects escaped, and it's unknown whether they were wounded. The victim, and I like what the victim had to say here. We, we usually get the funny, you know, quotes from the the older, you know, the older folks that you have to use guns in defense, right? Uh, the victim called nine one one after the incident, telling the dis- the dispatcher, "quote I got a couple of holes in the wall." End quote. <laughs> The, the, the brain is not normal in this situation. No. Nine one one. I got a couple of holes in the wall. Oh, can you? Would you mind telling us what, what are the holes for? From well, a couple guys broke in and started shooting at me, and I had to shoot back. Here's here's another quote. He said, "I'm not hurting real bad." Yeah. So he was actually wounded in the. Uh, there was gunfire that was exchanged from both sides, and he was wounded. Um, and, and so there. I shared the story because one, there's a little bit of humor in it that I think, and I think humor is always a good thing. Um, but number two, it, it's that realization that just because we carry a gun doesn't mean that we can solve all problems without expecting there's, there's always that chance that we're going to get hurt ourselves. And there's always that chance too, that legally things get a little you know sticky or difficult for us where we might need some sort of legal representation or whatever it is. So every time a gun and or deadly force is involved, our risk is always elevated. And we've got to be able to come to grips with that and accept that fact. In this case, also, there was a 17-year-old grandson who was in the house. And to escape the gunfire, he climbed out a window and onto the roof. So there was enough gunfire to be, be scary. Yeah. Well, kudos to this 84-year-old man for doing what he did uh, that, that he felt was necessary to defend himself, his home, his family, and for also keeping enough cool to say things like, I got a couple of holes in the wall. That's our stories for this week, folks. I uh, hope that you got something out of these. I hope that there was a lesson learned somewhere that applies to each of you and that in some way it makes you a little bit a little bit better, a little bit more responsible, and hopefully a little bit more prepared for something we hope that doesn't happen to you, but in case it does, we hope that you are ready for it. This uh, episode is brought to you once again by Guardian Nation, and a reminder again of our upcoming Happy Birthday America sale. We hope that you'll check that out and consider being a member of Guardian Nation if you're not already, so you can take advantage of that, and also all of the other many great benefits of being a member. You can learn more at GuardianNation.com. 
We also encourage you to check out our app, Concealed Carry Gun Tools. Search that phrase, Concealed Carry Gun Tools. And even if you search Concealed Carry, we should be in the top mm, five results. Yeah, Jacob hold up, held up a five. So search Concealed Carry Gun Tools. Find the app. Download it today. It's completely free, 100% free. Always will be free. And we are putting more and more features into that all the time that other apps out there charge money for that... Yeah, it's available in our app for free. So check it out today. And finally, we hope that we will see some of you in Cincinnati, Ohio, here in about a month, July 13th, the 15th, for our next series of Triple Guardian courses. That is the Triple uh, that is the, that is the Guardian Essentials Pistol, Guardian Standards, and Guardian Breakthrough Pistol courses. You can learn more and get signed up to join us, me and Matthew, who is also a regular podcast uh, co-host. You can go to concealedcarry.com forward slash Ohio Triple Guardian 2018 and get signed up today. So great course. Uh, We're getting awesome feedback from those that have gone through the curriculum. And it's, I think, also just going to get better and better from here on out as well. So hope to see you there. So, and also just uh, because it's been a while since I think I mentioned it, uh, we hope that you'll... uh, send some support uh, in, in the direction of the Not Your Average Gun Girls podcast. And uh, if you're not interested in listening to a couple of ladies sit around and talk about uh, concealed carry and and and, and female con- you know concealed carry needs or whatever, well, you might mention it to your significant other that might be interested in a podcast like that. So anyway, check out the Not Your Average Gun Girls podcast available in iTunes and wherever else you might listen to podcasts as well. So Jacob, it's time to say goodbye. Anything else you want to throw out there? No, man, all good. Thanks everyone for your support. Yeah, we do appreciate all of you. And we appreciate those of you for not only your support, also those of you that care enough to write into us, to email us, to contact us, or to leave a review of the podcast. Thank you. It really makes a difference, and we love hearing from you. So, um, and, and to those of you participating and viewing on Facebook today, thanks for being with us today. Uh, we hope to see you next time. And so with that, I'm going to sign out, sign out and sign off with a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. Laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.